friends, it's Kara, your host and salonier here in Le Vital Core Salon, where I introduce you to impactful women and we talk about how they're navigating bullshit and potentially sidestepping burnout. Today, I want you to meet Ruth Ungar Miranda. And to say that Ruth is a multidimensional artist and collaborator is a massive understatement. As a recording artist, she records and tours with the Mammals, or as Mike and Ruthie, which includes her husband, Mike Miranda. And touring is a global family affair for them, regularly including their two kids when they're traveling all over the U.S. and to places as far away as Australia. When Ruth is home in the Hudson Valley, she's hosting two annual folk music festivals known as the Winter Hoot, which is actually coming up on January 31st, and also the Summer Hoot. Ruth's also continuing to study, shape, and share the musical environmental mission of the Ashokan Center as the Arts and Communication Director. And because she isn't busy enough, you might hear a little bit of the home renovation in the background today. Admittedly, she's frequently powered by coffee. The lessons that Ruth shares extend way beyond folk music, so don't worry about needing to know a thing about it to dig into this episode. We talk about balancing your craft, whatever craft that may be, with the business side of things. We talk about leveraging patience and impatience, and also with connecting with other human mammals in a really meaningful way. In other words, Ruth really helped me pack this episode full of a bunch of wisdom and ideas and tips and so much inspiring stuff. If you're interested in learning more about the mammals or the upcoming winter hoot, you can go to the mammals.love or hoot.love. Voila, meet Ruth. Ruth, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, thanks for having me, Kara. So let's dive in right away. You grew up in a family known for folk music. Was this a path you always thought you'd follow? Uh, no, I, I really didn't. Um, I think like a lot of people who have a family business, I spent most of my childhood envisioning a different future for myself. And I really... Um, I really settled on in my teens and college years, I settled on theater, which I realized it's like still the performing arts and related, but to me seemed very, very different in a whole culturally different uh, path. And so I did a lot of community theater here in Woodstock, New York. The Woodstock Youth Theater was a huge part of my life growing up. And I went to Bard College and I studied uh, my major was called drama dance, which was uh, this very close knit group of people studying theater. <laughs> and, um, you know, even it wasn't even musical theater, most of it. So I was really devoted to that. I went to London and did a program there. And most of the close friends I have from that whole era are still, you know, from the theater. And there's still some of my closest friends and very few of us are actually doing theater, but there's a few who still are doing it. Um, yeah. Anyway, I discovered at some point that theater is actually the only crappier career you could choose uh, <laughs> by various <laughs> metrics like, um, you know, money, time, social issues, like being a folk musician seemed hard and challenging and, and, and I saw that through the eyes of a kid growing up in, that, in a family where that was what everybody did. 
and there were obvious pros and cons, but theater, it's like you, you, I suddenly discovered that like people were actually like in the theater, you might actually pay to do a job, you know, <laughs> like, like not only does it not pay, sometimes you're actually paying them so that you get to do your gig. <laughs> and like in, in, in the folk music world, like you will at least walk home with 50 bucks, you know, it, it, you know, maybe, maybe even 500 bucks or something. It makes me think of a photo that I just saw, like in the internet flotsam and jetsam yeah. where it was talking about like the, one of the truths about music is it's, an artist loading $5,000 worth of gear into a car that costs $500 to maybe make 50. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have friends in the music business who we joke, our friend Jose Ayerbe always said like, we're all just trading the same $50 back and forth from one to the other. Like here, you hold it for a few months, like, <laughs> like the, you know, because that's actually, and, and the, some similarity to the theater is like that self-producing thing where, and that's what I loved about it when I was doing it. I might be a lighting designer one day and then being lit by my friend the next day because I'm in the show. Or I might be designing costumes or, you know, I really liked that about the Bard Theater Department and Woodstock Youth Theater was that everyone was learning all sides of the business. And a lot of my more successful friends uh, from the, that time are lighting designers and costume and set and hair designers and stuff like that because that is a kind of a wonderful creative side and it's nice to I don't know it's nice to be on stage and understand all those people that made it possible for you to stand there and I feel I've taken that with me in the music world you know I produce festivals I tour manage for our band I organize and I you know um, I give a lot of moral support to other people that we all support each other you know um Sometimes a friend is coming through town, I, I hook them up with a show or I, you wouldn't believe how many times people will write to Mike or I with, I'm coming through the Northeast, I have one gig, what else should I be doing that's, you know, convenient and I'll, you know, Mike will spend two hours of a day that he doesn't really have that, you know, that early time. hour, like compiling this loving email with like all the people to call and what to say and where to go after this one. And I don't know, it's a, there's a sort of a, <laughs> um, I don't know, a karma to it. Cause then we'll go somewhere we know nobody and people take care of us and put us up in their house and put on a show and make us feel at home. It's, it's amazing. So it's interesting to me, like you made this jump. It almost from the outside looking in sounds equally as hard as theater. Like you mentioned it being that theater was sort of a crappier choice. But what I'm, what I'm hearing you describe actually sounds really hard too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it is challenging. I would say, you know, one thing I noticed about the theater that I liked was when a show is over, it's over, and you have a big rap party, and you're like, yay, and you kind of move on, and whatever those relationships were in that cast, good or bad, you kind of get to restart every three months, you know? I kind of idolized that in hindsight, but I really enjoyed that because there's sort of a freshness, and I love new beginnings, and when you're in a band, you get to do that when you make a new record and kind of reinvent yourself a little bit, but it's still the same, largely the same people on the same thing, and if you reinvent yourself too dramatically, people are like, oh, that's not the band I liked. And there's this expectation of being consistent for a really long time that seems odd to me as an artist. But one thing I do love about music is that people get together and play music. People hang out and 
share their new song. I'm, you know, it, it's rare that actors will get together and say, oh, let's do that cool scene from, you know, that play <laughs> right now. Or, you know, or like, want to hear my new monologue? You know? <laughs> There's something social about music just off stage that I really am drawn to. And I wish, you know, my current life had more of that, to be quite honest. There's a lot of, um, a lot of business and a lot of not playing music to my music career. <laughs> I, I like the music part a lot. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause yeah. I, I feel like when Craig first mentioned you and Mike to me, he's like, they're just really seem like they're doing it differently. Like, and I, I feel like hearing Craig say that about people always like perks up my like radar, like, Ooh, what are they doing? Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about the split of what your time looks like, how the business and the music intersect and overlap a little bit? So people have some context. Sure. Well, you know, I know a lot of artists, um, actors, painters, musicians, whatever, who are really good at their art and very not skilled at business and then a lot of um more successful artists who are talented at the business side and you know maybe their art is equal better worse it doesn't matter their success is built on their ability to wear ambition proudly and keep going there's something about ambition that in our culture at large is very dubious or something <laughs> you're meant to have it but not too much of it and I really feel like in my life my role models are my parents who um, split up when I was like seven or eight and my dad is a very savvy business guy and has taught me a lot of what I know and I grew up kind of emulating a lot of the stuff that he's always had a handle on you know <laughs> and um <laughs> And asking him questions constantly, you know, whether it's what do you, you know, what do you claim on your taxes when it comes to a travel vehicle or, you know, the, the minutiae and then, you know, and also stuff that's more uh, emotional, like what do I do? This band is driving me crazy, but it seems successful, but we don't want to do it anymore. Like, uh, what do we do? You know, um, and I remember you know, switching from a bigger band down to a duo at one point, just for personal emotional reasons. And I remember my mom, who is all talent and creativity and passion and really has less of a stomach for the business stuff. <laughs> I remember her saying like, you know what, people will love you guys, whether you're a band or a duo, like, do what you need to do, you know, in a really sweet uh, and memorable way. So I'm not really answering your question, but I'm just sort of giving you an idea that, you know, whether it be my friends and the way we talk about it or just looking back at my role models, and some of my friends are my role models at this point, you know, everybody's got their different skills. And when you can collaborate when you get that benefit, you get, okay, we have, you know, someone in our inner circle who's really going to rock, you know, the website, updating social media, uh, advancing shows. We have somebody who's going to be great at following up on production of 
the music and the mixing and mastering and someone who's going to collect all the liner notes that we need and someone who's going to take care of the publishing and somebody who's going to be looking six months ahead, nine months ahead all the time, um, booking work and somebody who's going to be looking one month, one week, two weeks ahead, booking hotels, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> not everybody can really do all those things at once. So it's, it's really about teamwork and, yeah, I sometimes joke that 10% of a musician's life is playing music, but it's not a joke. It's real. I mean, if you want to have music in your life as, um, I hate to use the word hobby, but as a pastime, you know, just because you like to play music, you might actually play music more than your average musician <laughs> who's trying to, because, you know, you might, you might find yourself in a job where you actually have, you know, some time to do that. We, we're, we work really hard. We do. I don't know exactly how to say how much time we do each thing, but we spend a lot of time looking at a computer screen like most people these days, <laughs> whether it's booking <laughs> shows, promoting shows, looking for, um, you know, relationships to build or, um, you know, listening to mixes or trying to write a, a convincing email that will get us somewhere, you know, <laughs> there's a lot. A lot. Booking so flights, I, booking hotels. <laughs> yeah. I think you're sharing something interesting. And maybe it's just interesting because I'm married to Craig, who has worked in the music industry for like pretty much the better part of two decades in, I think, every capacity besides actually a performing artist. Cool. And so it's interesting as you're talking because I feel like over the years, like Craig's been... Craig has been a manager and Craig is also, I, I think it happens increasingly so as his career has gone on where artists have reached out to him, asking him to consider managing them. And it's interesting right. because they just want to find a home for all of the stuff that you're talking about, like that 90% that's not actually making yeah. music that makes you successful. Yeah, we've dreamed about that. But you know, it's what, what any manager or agent will tell you is a manager and an agent wants to manage or book the band that already doesn't seem to need them or something. I, I'm not articulating that well. But if you're already doing a great job, and you're already commanding audiences, and you're already, you know, you have to already be doing it. It's like, you can't just be good at music and then have someone go, wow, your music is so great, that with my skill, we'll have a great tour put together and people will come. I mean, it's, we're very jaded, I would say. Like when, when, if, if he said we, we appear to be doing it differently, I think part of it is that we're eternally optimistic in that we don't give up and we keep doing this. I mean, we're in our early forties and we've been doing this 20 years together, Mike and I, in one form or another, whether as the mammals, Mike and Ruthie, um, you know, the who, whatever we're doing, it's together. And I'm actually inspired just by knowing that and knowing that we have complementary skills and a fan base and friends and we can keep going. So that part of us is optimistic, but I think on the whole, we're also very jaded and we don't fool ourselves, I guess <laughs> like, Oh, we'll get a record deal and we'll get a, you know, a team and it'll just, we, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> it I, I just think takes just, off suddenly. Just, <laughs> yeah. Something, Maybe it's from growing up in the folk world. You know, my parents made music, still do, you know, in order to eat, live, you know, it wasn't to get 
famous. It wasn't to, you know, it's only been recently that I'm sort of like, wow, if my goal had been to be a really, really well-known musician and to write a song that gets like huge, what would that have looked like? Like what kind of other choices would I have made in my twenties? Cause I didn't have that in my head ever, you know, what was in your me, head at that point. To me, it was just like being real and uh, embodying the music that I grew up with in a new way that still honored the old way that felt good to do and to be able to eat and live another day and, you know, fix the van and keep going, like to sustain, to have a sustainable career financially, but not, you know, insane, you know, I, I, I don't know, for me, it's like, here's something that I've, I've always thought is weird. If you tell someone you're a florist or you tell someone you're a school teacher or a plumber, or I don't know, I could list a bunch of normal t- type of occupations <laughs> insert here. Rarely do people say, Oh, I, Oh, I, I haven't heard of you. I'm sorry. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, Oh, how's that going? Like, why do people for some reason when you're a musician, they, they can't envision that you make a living, you support your family, you eat, you know, you replace broken parts on your car, fix your teeth, like anyone else. Like, why is it that there's this projection that you must have this greater goal of fame and uber success? And that if that isn't what you're achieving, that it's weird. I've been trying to sort this out for like, <laughs> I was going like to say this sounds like years, a question you've been you've been mulling over for some time yeah well I think about it I'm like why is that because I grew up in a world of folk music where that is no one's goal ever wait so Ruth I want to pause you here yeah talk a little bit just so the listeners are on the same page as you and I yeah me having done some research and you having lived your life <laughs> about the milieu that you grew up in Okay, so my dad is a fiddle player. Um, he grew up in the city. He's, you know, he grew up in um, in the Bronx and he was in the village and met my mom there and she was a folk singer and he played the fiddle and they, you know, they were in a rock band in 69, drove in a VW bus to California to make a record <laughs> in Mendocino. Like, you know, it's like a movie almost as some of this imagery, but I feel like they, you know, they were part of a period of time where they were exploring their current pop music thing a bit, but they were really delving deep into the older American traditional music styles of folk, blues, country, and stuff that is pre-bluegrass, but has like fiddles and banjos, which is called old-time music, and um, ballads that were sung by various cultures and retranslated and all that kind of stuff. And so like at that point, the Newport Folk Festival was somewhere where they would see the Balfa brothers, like two um, amazing Cajun fiddle, Cajun musicians from Southwest Louisiana playing for the first time or being for the first time in the Northeast. You know, that was, uh, there were moments of discovery like that for like my dad in particular, where he heard this real rootsy music and wanted to learn it. So he, um, 
yeah, he just became well-known when I was maybe a teenager for this tune that was sort of like a Scottish air that he had composed. It's called Ashokan Farewell. Ken Burns used it for the PBS um, documentary that he made called The Civil War. So it was the main theme of that series. Which I'm sure a few people listening have heard. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty mean, hard it, to escape it, actually. Yeah, it exposed, you know, his playing, which is very emotional and very authentic in a way to him. I don't know that it's authentic, like, uh, it's hard to explain. There are levels of authentic, and <laughs> my dad has an authenticity that's very, um, like, emotional. His, he's from Hungarian immigrants, and he's got some sort of, deep like eastern european thing in his soul maybe but he also is drawn to learning like the real way to play cajun music or celtic music or any kind of other fiddle music and of course someone from those regions won't think he sounds like them he's still doing it with an accent but um he also brings all those flavors into everything he does so yeah i i'm a weird you know i was a weird kid like you know somebody else would hear some fiddle music and say is that your dad and i'd look at them like they're crazy like that doesn't sound anything like my dad. Like, what? Like, I, I, I didn't realize until I was much older that people, other people didn't hear the way I hear. You know, I would also listen to, like, you know, More Than a Feeling or whatever was blasting on pop radio, and I couldn't tell what was a guitar from a bass from a synthesizer and that kind of music. But if you played me some, you know, <laughs> old field recording of, of a string band, I could tell you which part was the mandolin, and you know, which was the banjo. You know, it's like you're, you're raised, it's like, uh, you know, some people have 10 words for snow. I don't know. I was raised with a certain kind of ear. So to harken back to something I said maybe five, 10 minutes ago about, you know, the idea wasn't to be famous in the folk world. I mean, there are bands that are famous right now that supposedly are folk bands, but to me, that's not even like the minute that happens, it's not folk music. <laughs> like to, I, I hate to say it, but it's like, I don't know. It's something else. It's not really what I I don't know. Maybe it's folk with a capital F instead of a lowercase or something. Anyway, yeah, totally I mean, do you, do you think <laughs> do you think popular interest or enthusiasm like out there in the ether, does that change the definition of folk for you? It sounds like it does. Yeah, I mean it's like if you even think of like Peter Paul and Mary or like the Kingston Trio or like early folk music that was well known, I mean, even at that point like I listen to those records and they're special, but it's, it's not like the raw sound that I am interested in. <laughs> you know, um, if I hear Odetta, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> it doesn't, it's, it's not mutually exclusive. You can't be that the minute you're well known, you, you're no good. I mean, that's, that's silly. I shouldn't have really said that, but I guess I've just been raised to feel like, you know, once it's diluted for the masses, it's like it might have some bit of something real in it still. And I shouldn't devalue or, you know, try to unvalidate the experience of thousands of kids in their snapper shirts going like, oh, yay, like, oh, this is Americana and I love folk music. Like, I'm going to make fun of them in my tone. I just did. But I don't know. I was raised like in this way. <laughs> I just, I'd rather hear something that really feels like it could have happened in your living room or your front porch. Like that's really where it's at. And that's not everybody's thing. You know, some, uh, we, we once were part of this uh, mailing list that was pitching like 
ad work, you know, like here, you know, write a song about sunshine that's 30 seconds long and has this vibe and maybe you'll get this commercial, right? (laughs) And we found like we didn't even really speak the language. Like there was, they'd sometimes give you a sample track that you were kind of imitating. So there was this one explanation for this ad and it said that what they wanted was organic. They wanted organic sounds. They wanted organic folk sounds. And you're like, what does organic mean to someone on, on Madison Avenue in right, the right. city? So versus- I to, yeah, you're already knowing. Like, I put it on. It sounded like freaking techno or something and with, like, maybe a banjo in there that was, like, a synthesizer. I, we were just laughing. We're like, if this is organic, like, what? is what we do. It's like so far off the spectrum. It's like ultraviolet. It's like not even, can't even be heard by people who are in that world. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm like so far. Our joke was if this is organic, then what we do must be like compost. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, you got to maintain your sense of humor. We did totally get a big national commercial though, like a year later. So So it all comes around, right? Where you're like, yeah, I guess we we figured it out on that one. Yeah, it was me whistling and strumming a ukulele and singing about sunshine. And it totally was like more than we made doing any other single thing ever. Unbelievable. What does that mean (laughs) to you? Or what's the takeaway from that? There is a lot of money um, in the world, in the music world. And... It's, uh, it's very imbalanced, you know, sort of like you said, like the, the $5,000 of gear in the $500 car to go make $50. And then somewhere right up the road, there's somebody who's like <laughs> spending five minutes to write a five second jingle that makes them five, you know, $50,000. <laughs> there's a lot of imbalance. It's really interesting. It doesn't, you know, money doesn't always follow heart and skill and you know I'm not sure what it follows I really, I really and how much luck and timing like I, I feel like we play a game in this house like yeah. when we're watching tv where it's sort of like you see a commercial and I feel like it's just from being married and with Craig for so long now that I'm this like weird appendage of music industry knowledge and right. I feel like sometimes when we're watching tv like I see a sink you know, when someone's song has been placed for people listening who have no idea what that means. Yes. Um, and like, I'll look at Craig and I'll be like, how much do you think the artist got for that? Yeah. And it's like, it blows my mind sometimes the numbers that Craig just sort of like rolls off the top of his, his yeah. head as an educated guess. And I'm just yeah. like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. especially well, when you see like a, like a Beyonce sync you know, oh in a gosh. Super Bowl ad or something like that, it or Missy yeah. Elliott sank, and you're just like, holy God. But then you realize, like, someone like Missy Elliott, how many years has she been busting her hump to make music and be creative and do all the work behind the scenes that builds that success, that build well, that, music, like, awareness? You know, yeah, and different music, you know, is going to appeal to different people. Kind of like what I was saying. It's like my feeling is, I want to hear the mistakes. I want to hear something raw. I want to hear something where somebody's voice kind of cracks. I want to almost cry while I'm singing a moving song and I don't want to fall apart and not be able to finish the song, but I want to ride that line so that somebody in the audience cries. 
You know, I, they needed it to cry if they're crying. I want to, and, and that, and music is going to make someone laugh or cry or get up in the morning or clean their house or whatever it is that they're going to be able to do because of that song. And that's the reason that, you know, a sync license is worth that because they made the product, paid a zillion dollars to create this ad. And yet without that track, it's, it's going to look like nothing, you know, it's like the, the emotional <laughs> resonance, <laughs> you know, little things, of it. you know, little musical elements can really go a long way. We, you know, I think of like the nine lives commercial from my childhood that my mom and I would sit there and cry, like watching this little cat be reunited with this kid because of the little song. Like I, I'm almost going to get choked up just thinking of that nine lives commercial. What the hell? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're touching on something really important or at least something that really fascinates me. Uh, I don't know that I've ever like really defined it for people listening to this podcast, but something I am deeply obsessed with on a personal mm-hmm. level is holding space holding space for emotions, holding space for conflict. Like, I mean, for fun, I'm a volunteer mediator in a court. Um, And sometimes like doing private cases as a, as a mediator as well. Yeah. But it's, I, I think there's something so interesting in what you just said about like you're creating and holding that space. Like when you're performing, if, if someone needed to cry, you have created the container for that to be an okay thing. I guess yeah. I'd love to hear, how do you create and hold that space? Well, you know, that is what I've come to realize is the purpose of what I do. And um, people run from the tough feelings, even though they're also Amen. attracted to processing them. But, you know, with a, when when music helps with that and holds the space, music holds the space for three minutes, five minutes, you know, whatever the length of that song, if you put that song on because you want to go there, you also are putting it on because you know, in however many minutes, it's also over. It's a known length because music has a period of time, you know, maybe you go to a fish concert and maybe it's two or three hours long and that's your period of time you need to, have a cathartic experience or maybe you go to a classical music concert or maybe you you know put a song on repeat for an hour whatever it is you're somewhat in control of that time and then you can go back and you can feel like you just you know went in the sauna or the hot tub or whatever that feeling metaphor is you know (laughs) like okay I can breathe differently now okay like I'm going to go do my normal stuff now, but I'm taking a little piece of this with me. Uh, It's what people I'm sure experience in church or, you know, skiing or whatever it is. (laughs) You know, some people run, Um, but music is cool because you can take it with you, you know, on some of those journeys. And I, um, we were going to touch on our festival, the the summer hoot and the winter hoot. Uh, The winter hoot is coming right up. And on Friday, we usually do like a documentary, a discussion, and a dinner. And then there's music afterwards, just sort of an informal jam. And then Saturday's music all day. And I bring this up because um, a few years ago, a member of the community of The Hoot um, actually committed suicide right before the event. Oh and my, I'm so sorry. 
Yeah, it was, he wasn't someone I knew incredibly well, but he had worked as a cameraman and had been very, very close with the people who shoot and record our shooter session videos, part of their team. And they came anyway. Um, they almost didn't come and then they came and there was just so much heavy emotion floating through the air, especially on that first day on Friday. And, um, and there was a documentary that we were showing, which was about environmental destruction of the planet, which is also incredibly heavy. And the subject matter of that was about this, you know, it introduced me to a term eco grief, which is real. And um, yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, this is a heavy moment that we're all in and we're watching this film and the Q&A after it's almost hard to know what to ask because it's just so intense. And then what happened was, is I'm sitting talking to a friend because of some stuff that had come up with, you know, that had been triggered in her from her life. And we're just having a conversation in the next room. Some music starts playing. Oh, the jam got started. I hear some tunes, just sort of acoustic music, just sort of wafting through the wall. And suddenly our conversation was more possible. I don't, we weren't even in the room with the music, (laughs) but it was doing something. It was like sustaining us enough to have the conversation that we needed to have. You know, I was mostly just listening to her and which we were just having a back and forth and which just we were able, like I said, we were able to breathe more differently. We were able to hold the space with that music live, you know, informal music going on in the next room. And I, I, it was at that moment, I just realized how freaking important it is what we do. It's like, it doesn't replace anything. It can't, it can't be replaced. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, people in nursing homes who no longer know the names of anyone in their family. If you sing them a song from their past, they might know every word. It's crazy that this, you know, there are scientific <laughs> ways in which music is a different part of the brain than the worrying, thinking, analytical linguistic part of the brain even though it has words sometimes it's it's literally in a different part of your brain and I think that um feeding that part of the brain and nurturing it and encouraging it to fire its neurons you know it helps the whole brain (laughs) it helps the whole body yeah I think I think you're you're touching on something so important that like that we don't often just hear music that we feel it And I think, especially in the situation that you're describing at the hoot, it makes me think about as someone who sits with people in silence, you know, Mm -hmm. whether that be a, a conversation with a friend or definitely with clients over the years, you know, in places like mediation where you're just like, the uncomfortable is so overwhelming and palpable sometimes. I guess from my perspective, I've had so many instances where I see people like hit with silence and then try to like claw tooth and nail or run as fast as they can from that silence. I think it's like really on a primal level, like that kind of silence and like really being with yourself or being with that palpable emotion that's in the room that you're picking up all those vibes, like real heavy. Yeah. It's it's people try to escape it and I can Just only like imagine right now somebody's putting on this podcast so they don't have 
have to feel it. I, I do it. I listen to so many podcasts and I, it's when I'm alone and when I'm driving, it's like, it's such a relief to put a podcast on and let my mind go somewhere that it, that someone else is guiding. Sorry to interrupt you. I just like, I just think it's funny because we're doing this right now and it, we're, we're someone's escape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because you know, at points I've said to Craig, like if business was slow, you know, over the last decade or so, you know, I would look at Craig and sometimes he would tell me, he's like, I think people are afraid of you. And I'm like, what are you kidding? I mean, Ruth, you've seen me. I'm like 4'11 and like a hundred pounds. I was like, what, what are you talking about, Craig? And he's like, no, you actually, you don't even just sometimes invite people to sit with themselves or sit with silence. Like, right it's so automatic in you. Like, okay, yeah. I'll hold your hand. Let's go where it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And he's like, that terrorizes people some days, yeah. Kara. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm cut from a similar cloth and I've had to, it's Modulated. hard. You know, in, my, in, my, in my family or my, you know, upbringing, it was like, you know, you work it out, you face it head on, whatever it is. It's like, it's way better to go through it than around and avoid it. Like we just go, go there, cry, talk, think, figure it out. Let it, you know, let it happen. Sit with, like, I, I love all that. You know, I eventually met normal people who were like, what? <laughs> I had to have that experience in my 20s of like, wow, we just actually went there and talked about a thing and it doesn't feel better after. I'd never had that. I thought wow. that the rule was you talk it out and you feel better. Like I never met someone who was so angry still, like couldn't go through that process and feel at least a bit better. <laughs> and that was when I remember being like, oh, dang, like, some people aren't really wired to do this or they don't know what they're, you know, I don't know. I'm not, it was hard. <laughs> I, I definitely scared a lot of people. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, the kind of terror that you can invoke in people. Yeah. It's unintentional. You're obviously doing, you're trying to hold the space to process to the next level and not, um, it can be, you know, unintentionally kind of like invasive or, you know, controlling. And it's funny because it's like, I, I recognize in you that it's also probably coming from a place of love. And like, totally. if we push through this, like, look what's on the other side, except totally. some people can't see over that wall, right? Like mm -hmm. the wall is too high for them to actually get a glimpse of like, if we have this uncomfortable conversation, if we go to this space and if we do it together and if we really both try to like see each other and be free in this space. Oh my gosh. Like what, what can come of that? Yeah. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's a skill I hope to teach like my kids really, because um, I had no siblings. So watching my son and daughter battle each other day in and out <laughs> is like really exhausting. <laughs> wow. Like I wonder, um, I think I was a bit more innocent, you know, growing up in, well, without digital devices or a sibling, you know, <laughs> spent a lot more time thinking things through and, and less time just like spewing words and taking in stimulus. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think about it like I, uh, um, the skill of, they both have a skill for debate and conversation. And, that. <laughs> and they're used to talking to adults a lot and each other. But, you know, our son, who was the first, I mean, he grew up with adults. You know, he didn't, you know, joke like he grew up in a bar, but it's like, you know, he was in venues and on tour and still is happiest when he's pulled out of school and on a tour, you know, just hanging out with people in our band is really comfortable for him and our daughter too, too, in a different way. But I feel like the, yeah, the skill for communication and, and being able to talk about the feelings and thoughts that you're having, it's so important to impart that to the next generation where maybe they're, they're not very patient because if something doesn't, you know, happen at the click of a button, you know, when you're not looking into a screen and watching episode after episode of something on demand, the real world as soon as the episode is done and just keeps going on a loop. Exactly. It's like the real world can feel very slow and very frustrating, you know, compared to that, that new digital experience. And I hope to encourage some patience there and some, you know, value for, you know, just sitting in a moment and, and letting your brain do the work. I mean, at any age, we're, we're so affected by <laughs> our devices. Someone asks you, like somebody asked me what tardigrades eat. And I just looked it up, you know, I don't know. <laughs> just, just ask the screen, you know, just that was last night, you know, you, you enter, if you go somewhere with no service for a minute, you just have to remember, wow, if I don't know a quick fact, I'm going to have to just like ask someone around me or maybe wonder for a couple of days. <laughs> and it's funny because I feel like we're probably around the same age. I'm 42. Yeah, I'm a year and, older. Okay. So like, I feel like I was that same analog youth, but now like yeah. probably a pretty early adopter to digital living. But at the same time, I was that kid who had a set of encyclopedias that that was accumulated through grocery store purchases. Like, remember when grocery stores, it's like, if you know, if you bought $50 worth of groceries this week, then you get letter A from this like (laughs) set of encyclopedias. And my mom, I think recognizing that I had like 10 billion questions for her at every given moment was like, I gotta, I gotta get on this train. And so like accumulated a set of encyclopedias. So like even as a kid, I feel like I've never had great impulse control because I'd be like, well, I'm just going to write this down. And when I get home, I'm going to dig into this. And then like, (laughs) right. Like I was like that weird kid, but yeah, you're right. I think, I think patience is something we really have to consider now. I mean, there's so many aspects of like this digital revolution Mm. and like literally how it's changing our brains on a neurological level is just, I'm still trying to get my head around it. I feel like so many of the books I've been reading in the last couple of years are like, you know, about distraction and digital distraction. And I I don't want to say productivity, but it's sort of like, what is this all doing to our heads? Like, what is this all doing? I guess for me on a, a deeper level is like, how is this impacting how we connect to ourselves and to each other is always a question that I'm like, 
I think, underlying things. So I, I, well, I feel that in this conversation. Yeah, totally. And I think it really relates a lot to um, what's going on with maybe politics or the environment and stuff in the world that seems really enormous and um, really, really challenging. And, you know, so I, I was talking about patience and how I want to teach that. But then I also think about how much I admire the impatience of the next generation of climate activists who are like, what are we waiting for? Like, we can't be patient <laughs> at this moment. We just went to Australia and toured there with our kids in October, November, which was really an incredible experience. And like partway through that, which was their spring fire season started, which uh, is full blown right now. And an entire uh, town that we played in is gone and we're scheduled to go back there with our full band, the mammals in April. And I'm getting ready like today to call our Australian booking agent and be, you know, and just ask him, you know, to what extent is this still viable? Are any of these festivals going to be canceled? What's going on? You know? And, and I, I saw some sort of infographic that Mike shared yesterday, actually showing, California fires, fires in the Amazon, uh, one other massive fire maybe in Siberia, and then like um, the Australian, just uh, showing the scale, almost like a bar graph, and just making you realize this thing that's happening in Australia right now is more catastrophic than you can imagine. It's just like so many fires, and they're all joining together, and it's huge. It's, it's a beautiful c continent. And I'm just, it's hard to even talk about it. It's hard to, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Talk about that term eco grief that I learned. It's like, I feel like my heart is just broken when I think about it. And I can't, you know, I hope to write music that can hold the space for someone to emotionally process how fucked up this is so that, you know, with the, so, you know, I hope to have the patience to process, to write, to create, to hold the space so someone else hearing that will, like, be able to motivate toward action instead of numbness. You know, I mean, we are the same age, right? So we're from the apathetic generation, right? We're from the, you know, <clears throat> the end of Gen X or whatever, right? Like, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, um, kind of... <laughs> whatever never mind you know it's yeah, it's really quite literally it's, it's really kind of scary that you know now we it's just first of all it's not cool to be apathetic anymore thank god but it's really hard to unnumb your heart when it's like coming off of the anesthesia after your wisdom teeth and you you keep wondering is this the pain? Is this the pain? How far does it go? If I, <laughs> you know, like maybe I should take one more of these codeine because I'm not sure I like this feeling. And it's that. And I'm not numb enough. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and I, I don't really know, you know, again, it's like I, the optimism, pessimism pendulum or the the feeling it numbing it pendulum there's a balance and it's a challenge for me to know how to <clears throat> how to teach that you know to another generation and say wow what did we do wrong what did we do right and 
you know, how can we work together to not be in denial of really, really painful realities and hopefully do something. So I'm hearing in what you're saying, there's, it's sort of like, can I have the patience to write the music and hold the space and be present, be in that moment? But then can I also inspire this activism or this impatience, like this, this, yeah, activism now, right? Like that's, those are the two words that are coming to mind to really get people moving. Yeah. I mean, uh, (sighs) Mike has read this book. We've read a book and he, 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 um, buys 10 copies at a time to give to everyone he knows. So I don't know if he's given Craig one yet, but (laughs) it'll show up in your house. (laughs) It's It's a book (laughs) called, um, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. And it's a really cool uh, novel device for explaining humans relationship to the planet and to religion and to myth and to a lot of things and sort of showing how we've explained ourselves and how self-centered we've been in our examining of the natural worlds and who we are and how important we are or aren't and yeah I guess I bring it up because it was really soothing in a way to read it it was one of those books that it's done in an entertaining way a really easy to read way and it also affirms some of the things that just have always made sense to me um i'm not a religious person organized religion uh i love when it makes people happy but i think as a whole it mostly scares me because it seems like um it's about the next life and I'm, I'm worried about throwing away what we have just because we know we'll be in a better place someday or something like that. And this book really, the book Ishmael touches on that in a really strong way. If people are convinced that what we do now to this planet is, you know, is sort of irrelevant. It's just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. It doesn't seem very spiritual to me to throw away, (laughs) you know, nature. But somehow, like the people who care the most about this planet are the the non-religious. I don't know how that happened, but it seems like how it is right now. I hope that shifts. I hope so too. I hope we can all start to care about it equally. I don't really get it. (laughs) And I think just for for perspective, I think Mm -hmm. you hoping that people are let's say, environmentally inspired to take action from your music, that's like such a small piece of the work that you do. I I think maybe this is a good point to get the audience up to speed on the Ashokan Center and the work that you're doing there. Before we talk about Ashokan, like in our 20s, we wrote a lot of politically themed songs that were a little more finger pointing and calling attention to things that we weren't happy about, but like our more recent stuff is more singing about what we're for rather than what we're against. And in my case, doing a lot of asking important questions in a song instead of acting like I have all the answers. And um, it's because I've had conversations with people after shows and realized that, you know, it's, it's important to sing, sing to the choir, preach to the choir, but it's important to really reach people that, are new to your way of thinking and questions are a better way of doing that. So 
I wrote this song, My Baby Drinks Water, which is really like a lullaby. And um, the most of it, you know, my baby drinks water, my baby drinks tea, my baby eats an apple from the old apple tree, my baby drinks milk mother nature gave me. So please spare the water for my little thing. And that's just, you know, a weird old sounding <laughs> verse, but it doesn't say anything too controversial, I think. It's like facts. We drink water. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, apples have water. Mother's milk has water. We're made of water. We need the water, you know. Um I'll skip the second verse for brevity's sake, but the the verse that has a little bit of teeth to it, just ask questions. Um, do you measure your wealth by the size of your purse? What size is your coffin? What size is your hearse? What size is your heart if you put money first? High over the children and hunger and thirst. And it's just, you know, asking what's more important because it seems like if money is the most important thing that's when it all gets screwed up <laughs> you know so i don't know it's so I, smart because you're inviting <laughs> the conversation you're in and you're inspiring with image and sound like it's such a multi-sensory plea in some way just, it is a plea. just Thank think you. about yeah, it. I mean, I wrote it that way, like as a mother's plea. I read an article about, you know, breast milk in the Hudson Valley where we live containing all this gross shit, you know? It's like, you think of that as the most pure thing you can give your baby. And I think it still is, but... But it it's really also loaded with plastic and all sorts right. of garbage, it, too. Exactly, and it shouldn't be surprising, but it, it was to me that, yeah, that there's... It's in us. It's in everything. And, and, you know, we let it get that way collectively. We have to take some responsibility, you know, just like it's not my personal fault. There are PCBs in the Hudson River, but it's humanity's fault. And we can work together to change it or we can't, you know. Um, I mean, you can look at all sorts of things where people don't claim personal responsibility. Um, like look at like uh, slavery or reparations or racial equality questions it's like well I, I didn't do that uh that wasn't you know my ancestors didn't own a plantation it's like oh well you know this this happened and we're alive now so you know be a better ancestor be be somebody <laughs> be something you know stand for something don't just sit around saying it wasn't your fault you didn't personally do it you know I, we did it y'all did it I'm smiling because this episode's going to run directly after an episode I did with Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm, which cool. you've probably heard about her work and a um, lot of a little it, bit. I can't wait to listen. And it'll, you know, we talk about reparation, and I, I feel like, especially as a white woman, right? Like there is a certain sense of privilege that I carry and that I didn't realize I carried until I, you know, got older and got smarter and people yeah. helped me understand these things a little bit more yeah. and reading about them. And I think, you know, for me, that was a really uncomfortable conversation because I think there are points that like my 
my privilege knickers were showing a little. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I get that. And in a very... And in a public way. And I I feel like I have those conversations, but they're not usually like out in the open like that. And so like really learning more about reparations. So like everything that you're talking about are are things that I'm trying to understand more and amplify Mm -hmm. more. And like, you know, I I never want to look stupid when I'm talking about these things. And I, I think everybody in a lot of ways feels that same way. Like, Ooh, I don't want to talk about it because I might look stupid, but mm. I feel like, I think we need to start. <laughs> like, yeah, It's, start it's okay somewhere. to just start somewhere Absolutely. and really look at like, okay, yeah, there's this thread that's been unraveling since, you know, pick an issue, right? <laughs> like for yeah. 10 years, a hundred years, a thousand years, whatever it is. Yeah. Like, but well, that's why it's so crazy for us, this generation that was, you know, wearing flannels and rolling our eyes. It's like we're being, we're suddenly like being called upon or calling upon ourselves to really do a buttload more work on ourselves and on our collective culture. <laughs> um, I, I think, I don't know, there's something ironic about it to me. We just sort of thought we just shrugged a lot and it's like, you can't, you know, this is, this is a time where you have to be brave enough to say something stupid. Like you're saying to make a mistake, to put your foot in your mouth and keep going and apologize (laughs) and move on, like get, get a better understanding. Yeah. I I try to just put little things in songs, you know, like another song that we are mixing, uh, yesterday (laughs) a song of mine called someone's hurting which i wrote in scotland in this beautiful field of wildflowers where little lambs were romping around and it was like this most sunny day and we were like having this incredibly successful fun tour and having a great time and yet on my phone on facebook live i'm seeing a guy be shot in his car with his kid in the back seat and It's, it's unbelievable. It's just, you know, you, you watch something and you go, wow, okay, so because of Facebook Live, I can see this. But it's not the first time, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not new. It's not new. It's just a new technology that, you know, and a fucking brave woman to turn her phone on, you know. It blows my mind. You know, that moment. I'm like trying to just, what, what do I do? I'm standing here in Scotland in a beautiful field of wildflowers watching someone die. And I'm thinking, okay, all I can do is write a song. That's all I know how to do. And I didn't write the song that's going to fix that. But, you know, it's a song where it takes you to the third verse to say, you know, for me to say a thing. I, you got to wait sometimes for, the, <laughs> you know, after a chorus or two that someone can be, why is this song called Someone's Hurting? But, um, you know, the chorus, when it feels so good, like you're walking on air and you know that someone's hurting somewhere. I had a, a bandmate when we first started the Mammals, I had a bandmate who was a practicing Jew and she would take 10% of the $50 she made at the gig (laughs) or whatever it was. And she would tithe, which is basically like self-imposed Jewish income tax. (laughs) It's like, it's like they, she just take her 10% of everything she ever made. And, um, 
actually I don't know where it went if she gave it to a synagogue or charity or what she did with it but she tied that 10% and she explained to me that it was a way of even in your most happy successful moments being aware of those who are suffering and not doing okay and it's like (laughs) it really stuck with me because um and that's what that chorus is you know it's like the highest highs that anyone can have and we all deserve them we all deserve to feel good and thrive and succeed and you know celebrate but even in those moments somewhere in our hearts like we have to stay aware not to take away from those happy moments but to to maybe try to share even just spiritually a little bit of you know to give back or financially or whatever it is you know i've never really tried to articulate this and i didn't expect to (laughs) you know but it's welcome to the vital course salon you never know where these conversations are gonna go yeah and i i don't know you know i don't know if all of that and more can come through in one verse of a song but um you know i have this idea for the video for the song maybe you'll be in it with me Um, Because my third verse about privilege, you know, it's I had the words are, uh, we talk about the privilege of of the people who look like me. How our worries are the size of a nickel in a big wishing well. If someone was to shoot me, I bet they wouldn't go free and we wouldn't be talking about how I brought it on myself. And so I have this idea. (laughs) I want to be at the Hudson Valley Mall and I want (laughs) to shoot this video there. Um, And I want to have like, me and a lot of the moms from my school who like we just really a lot of us look alike you know and i just think like what if we're all just walking in the parking lot in our like same coats and boots and just walking this feeling of like freedom that we don't even know we enjoy but we do (laughs) um yeah it's it's interesting because i feel like this starts to come up with family and friends and it's I'm still sort of mocking around with how do I model how do I teach Mm. how do I convey I I think the older I get like the the more I realize even though I can have a big mouth and be brave and be in the front of things Mm -hmm. I feel like where I'm happiest is creating Oh, I don't even know how to describe it. Like benevolent spider webs. Like like what are like those nearly invisible things that like can connect us and and relay an idea. You know, especially I think you and I hold hold some some love and awareness and attention towards things like white privilege, towards the towards the environment. And I realized, like, I'm never going to be the scientist who's making fancy models and explaining things, even though, like, I would probably delight in that role. But it's like, what are the things that the skills that I've collected, like, how can I put them to good use? And so I definitely feel like a big emotional resonance listening to you talk about, like, you know, what do I just do? Write a song? And And the answer to me is... A, a resounding yes, because there's so many ways to peel a banana. <laughs> yeah, that was like 2016, and it's like 
four years later, we actually released a song. It takes so dang long, you know? We, we tracked it a year ago and we're mixing it now. It's just because our life is very full. You know, we're parents, we host festivals, we travel and tour and we're perfectionists. So <laughs> it takes a long ass time for a topical song to come out. Um, sometimes the topics have shifted, but um, in many ways, you know, it, it's still relevant when it comes out. But um, yeah, Benevolent Spiderwebs is a wonderful image. And, um, you know, I feel I feel like it was maybe like Mr. Rogers. I'm he obsessed. He said something about like his mom when he would be frightened about. Oh, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers, right? <laughs> so for anyone listening, and and for you, Ruth, yeah. like I don't think people know this about me other than close friends and and Craig this year for Christmas. We don't do like big giant Christmas gifts, but Craig this year brought in this like huge package and I was like, what is this? And it's a framed giant like pop art version of Mr. Rogers for our <laughs> living room. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if I like sh- continue to share it with the living room or I just like hog it and bring it up to my office (laughs) so I can sit with Fred all day. Either way. But I think like literally in 2016, I started going back to the old episodes. I started, like I have had this like, I can't even explain it. Like I'm probably going to need a shrink to break it down for me. But I, I just feel like there's something so powerful, right? Like if you watch some of like those old like black and white episodes or some of the early episodes in the 60s where it's like he's talking about the Vietnam War. He talks about assassination with like three and four-year-old children. But oh my God, like the broken, uh, like, yes. If you really want to read a good book, um, there's the Maxwell King biography, which is wonderful. And if you don't have time to tackle that big of a book right now, there's the documentary that came out, which I think, is it called Won't You Be My Neighbor? I I feel like sometimes I get so into like what I'm feeling about it, like things like a title, like the formal title (laughs) of something goes out the window. But I mean, that was something, poor Craig, I dragged him to the Rhinebeck Theater the day that documentary came out. Like and pretty we, recently, right? Yeah, like a couple of years yeah. ago. And then I dragged him to the theater at like, I don't know, three o'clock on a Friday because that was the first showing locally. And it was like me, Craig, and then a bunch of like 70-year-old people. And yeah. I literally was like littered with tissues by the end yeah. of it. Aww. I feel like there is something about his work that is so alive and vital and needed in this time. Totally. And it's like he was never for show. I mean, he was, again, like, I think, like you and I are talking about, like, just so consistent about, like, seeing people and seeing where they're at and meeting them with, like, full force love and compassion. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I hunger for that, I think, in Talk some about holding way. a space for things to be, you know. Wow. And when you learn more about the man, it's like that wasn't what you saw on television. Like, mm. I mean, he was like 
embodying it in every way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, where, where are those people? Like where I can't be the only one obsessed with Fred Rogers. No, <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. We got rid of TV when I was four. So, but up till then I would watch Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers and the electric company, like in a row every day. Yep. <laughs> you know? So I think like it was really early that that stuff went in. And then, you know, just thinking, you know, my parents with their like kill your television bumper stickers and just getting rid of it inside. <laughs> it was like pretty, pretty sad, you know, but um, still got to watch it at friends' houses and stuff. That was just, you know, there's nothing quite similar to that now. You know, I think of the whatever YouTubers my kids like to watch and you know, <laughs> learning new recipes for slime that contains shaving cream and glitter or something. It's like, yeah. what is going on <laughs> right now? You know, where's, where's today's Fred Rogers? Like, what happened? He That's would be eaten alive, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I think about that too, and I'm like, he would be, one, I think he would be completely heartbroken just based on, yeah. like, what you shared. Like, look at where we've gone. And then it's, yeah. like, I, like, who would listen? I feel like because if you're not screaming these days, it's, like, it's, it's hard to wonder if yeah. we're, we're really connecting and, and feeling felt and feeling understood in a way that can be reciprocated, too. Well, that's kind of like I was saying about our music. Like, is it off the spectrum of what people can even hear? Um, there's a book my mom used to read at um, Christmas time called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which I realize some people know as, a, as like a cartoon, but I never saw that. But we read the book every year. And there's a story where they end up at the talent show, Ma Otter and Emmett Otter's Jug Band, and they're competing to hopefully win the big Battle of the Bands prize so that the they can buy each other a real Christmas present this year. And the river bottom nightmares show up and the electric mayhem ensues. And, and then when they go on, it sounds like nothing because this big band with the light show went on before. That. <laughs> you know, it's, like that. it's this weird feeling. Sometimes it's like, it's all relative, you know, like if you're in the right space for this, like kind of more, that's why we have this t-shirt and this poster. It says two folk for the rock show and two rock for the folk show. <laughs> it's like, it really depends on what you put. It's like one of those blue green paint chips where you're like half your family is like, that's green. And the other's like, it's blue. It's like, well, it depends on what you hold it in here, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, if you hold Fred Rogers next to anything, you know, I think he still looks good, but, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to know how he'd look now. You're, you're making me think of Pete Seeger, who we hung out with quite a bit. His grandson, Tao, was in our band when we started the Mammals. It was the three of us, Mike, Tao, and I. And, um, and so we played with Pete a lot. And um, he was really, um, you know, I guess a little bit like Mr. Rogers in that he was really consistent and very... Um, sort of a moral compass for his time and a creative person who was very enigmatic. And he, you know, we, we did this 90th birthday party at Madison Square Garden that Tao organized and invited us to sing at. And it's like 150 musicians there all singing Pete's songs and Pete was there and, and 
I got to really see him stand in front of, you know, maybe, I don't know, it's 14,000 people or something. And just like it's rolling off a log, you know, get them all to sing. It's an incredible, it was an incredible thing to see. I saw him do it with, you know, 30 kindergartners. And I saw him do it with all different ages and sizes of audiences. And that's just really something that we still love about folk music is that it does cross generations it cross you know it's a way for people to be together sing together and um and when he died i remember just thinking when our current president was elected it's like that could not have happened in a universe where pete was alive like i feel like, <laughs> like somehow, his absence like, somehow made the vacuum appear like cosmically those two things couldn't have existed in one universe and i was like uh, I was kind of, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to have lost him. And he, you know, he was imperfect. He was a real person. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't Jesus Christ by any stretch. No, no, you know, but, um, you know, he had a knack for, for, um, inspiring big groups of people all at one time. And I think that that's something Mr. Rogers also possessed and something a lot of, you know, a lot of us can strive to possess. It's like, if I'm in an audience, you know, at a Unitarian church folk venue, or if I'm, you know, we just did a show in Boston a couple of weeks ago, opening for our friends Crooked Still, and it was a really fun show. It was like a standing room at the Sinclair in Boston. It was like a more of a rock club or something. And, you know, it contrasts all these different spaces and rooms and environments and different kinds of crowds. And it's, you know, that's what I still live for is just like that moment where even before you sing, it's just like you just are breathing and you're standing there and you know that these people are, they're wishing you to take them somewhere. They're, they want your success. You know, this is something I maybe took from my theater training. They don't want you to fall on your face. They don't, they're, they're, you know, the audience out there wants this to be awesome. So all you have to do <laughs> is just like, let it be. That's awesome, you know, as it can be. Mike's brother is an incredible entertainer, just like a natural, a real, real. He was our drummer for many years, but he's a born front man, same as Chris Miranda. And one time Mike said, how do you do it? Like, how do, how do you do what you do? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I just, I just know how to take a really bad show and make it be a good show. <laughs> which was like so cute because like yeah and how do you fucking do that but um <laughs> but I think I think you do that with the knowledge that everyone else also wants it to be a good show <laughs> and maybe that's what some of these people that we admire also knew how to do it's like they we watched Mr. Rogers or Pete Seeger or, or whoever it is with that hope you know and we're giving that gift of like, okay, you have my attention, you have my time. That's the gift that the audience gives. And then you just have to give it right back. <laughs> and there's a bravery in that. I think being able to just be seen as yourself. And I, I feel like that's yeah. a challenge that probably all of us, I can certainly think back to, you know, even doing speaking events, mm. you know, where I'm talking about things like bullshit and burnout and self-care and and that kind of realm. 
And I, I think your message of like, no one wants you to fail. I mean, I think that was the single greatest thing that mm-hmm. kept me from just like losing it because I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not afraid to lead things, but I'm, I think sometimes it's uncomfortable being seen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, especially if you're trying to push a button or move a needle or like, you know, really say, like point at something uncomfortable and say like, what are we going to do about it? Like, and, and have people own it. Yeah. It's, it's hard to stand out front. And I, I think maybe that's something Pete and Fred had in common, you know, just really being able to just like not be self-conscious about that. Like to just do it. Yeah. And well, one thing that you learn when you're writing songs is that um, the thing that seems more general and accessible is actually boring and less relatable. And the thing that might seem super specific to you and too weird is actually more relatable. I can see that. I can really see that. Because <laughs> it's... Yeah. We all think that we have to generalize, but we really, it, it's more interesting when, when you don't. <laughs> yeah, you, and I think maybe this comes all the way back to, to one of your points very early on about like, can you be satisfied changing the mind or opening the heart of one person or for whatever the reason, does it need to be 10 or 100 or 1,000 Right. Like, Mm. I think once I looked at how I want to contribute in this lifetime or what I want to contribute or how I want to do it, I think when I got comfortable saying, like, okay, if I go do a speaking event and there's only five people that show up that night, like, I think initially I was like, well, that would be a bummer. Like, nobody showed up. And I think once I was like, or, I can scrap the talk that I was going to do and I can sit in a circle with five people and we can right. really connect as human beings and and right. they can maybe co- just come away with something different or real or what they needed. Right, is- because those people that showed up are not the problem. They yeah. don't deserve a lesser thing. They deserve a greater thing because they actually came. Yes. It's, yeah. it's really important because when you have a small house, you can feel that feeling, oh, it's a small house. But no one in the audience wants to see you feel that feeling, even if they're starting to feel it. It's like they, you know, they're the, they're the good guys. <laughs> 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 you know, you need to feed and water them. They'll grow. Yeah, that's, yeah. you articulated it much more beautifully, but I think it was something like, <laughs> It was something but you did I it wrestled with. You pulled up some chairs and you sat around and you had a more real thing that an audience of 50 people couldn't have. Yeah, I'm probably the worst person to hire as a speaker. Like, I feel like, <laughs> you know, it's happened in conferences too. Like, I remember being invited to speak to a room full of air traffic controllers, right? Okay. About, about like self-care. And, you know, I... I always try to make things interactive anyways. Like I feel like me just talking is, it's never been something I'm really great at. Like I'm not the keynote person. Um, I'm much better in in a dialogue situation. And I remember just like, you know, taking a pulse of the room and just hearing some of the like initial comments or like questions and, and behind them was like, 
finally, I remember just like throwing up my hands, like putting down like anything that was in front of me coming around, you know, the lectern or whatever. And I was like, I'm getting a big fat sense that saying no is an issue in this room. Mm. And it was like, I just saw like everyone kind of like, you know, eyes bug out, people shifting and like, (laughs) yeah, like spines get longer. And it was like, I was like, am I on to something? And then like, finally, you know, and then I just sat there. Like, again, I love to use silence sometimes strategically. That's really, that's really a good technique when trying to um, book a gig too. Although now it's all (laughs) I used to watch my dad do that. I remember him even telling me there was a particular venue in the Hudson Valley that would go unnamed where that was the booking guy's technique. Like he'd say, well, how about, how about uh, $150? And then you just, my dad could outweigh him on the silence. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, different context, but good tool. So it's so such a good tool, but I think like, I don't know. I think it's just important to, to be present. And it sounds like you do that as well. Like you're able to really like vibe out a room. Yeah, no, and 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 Mike is incredible at that too. Like our our band members really shift these days. Um, we have our amazing drummer Conrad Meissner who plays just about every show, and then our bass player or keyboard player. Those two seats are rotating, so we have a rotating cast of amazing people who play with us. But it shifts. So usually, if we're embarking on a tour or a show, we get the like, "What's the set list going to be?" Because usually, one of those guys is like you know, still a little new on the music and wanting to know what to brush up on. Mike infuriatingly will not make a set list till he sees the room. (laughs) You know, he's like, I have to stand there for a second. Okay. You know, and it's maybe almost the same set list as last night, but he will not say that till he's been in the space. And it's the same thing. You know, he uses a sort of a sixth sense antenna. He's always made the set list. That's his superpower. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. And I'm laughing. I've never made one. Or if I I have, it's always sucked. And then it goes back to him. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my power. (laughs) That's amazing. And I'm totally laughing because when I was sort of benevolently stalking you online, you know, I saw the picture on the website and I was like, I said to Craig, I was like, is that Brandon and Will from The Restless Age in that photo? And then it's funny because now like that meaning is actually, extra funny knowing that like yeah. Mike actually causes restless ages <laughs> yeah. or restless well, aging guys, perhaps. <laughs> for those guys are some of the more chill seat. side men you can hire. And um, yeah, they, they, uh, they played with us like for most of 2018 and quite a bit of 19 and uh, it was super fun. And they're actually doing some shows with us in May, June, I think. Actually, I have to write an email and confirm that. But um, yeah, <laughs> they're really great to have as a team on the keys and the bass. And uh, they play on the new record along with a bunch of other folks too. So really fun. Oh, can't wait. Yeah. When, when will the new album be out? That's a great question. Um, like maybe May. That's the goal. These shows I'm talking about are CD release shows that are... You know, I have to knock on some wood here because anybody who's done this kind of thing knows that the minute you actually 
pronounce a sleep date. You never know what might happen. So I was literally uh, just going to say, we won't hold you to it. We'll just be (laughs) looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. I'm really excited about the songs and um, it's going to be cool. We have, uh, yeah, we have a lot of songs. I'll be I'll be scheduling time to have a good cry while I listen. Is, is what I'm <laughs> well, is what I'm taking some, from some, this conversation. Yeah, well, hopefully some other feelings too. I mean, we have, uh, you know, that that's the other part of the balance of the mammals. It's like we've always sung like topical stuff, but um, you know, it's not the whole song. Maybe it's a verse of the song, or maybe it's a part of the song that makes you think, and the other part's going to make you dance, and then there's going to be an instrumental, and then there's going to be, you know, stuff that lets you like kind of shake through it and not just dwell in it it's not a won't be a dwelly album hopefully (laughs) i'm sure it will be amazing yeah i'm excited it's really fun to fun to make new work and um you know it's been interesting listening to your podcast and hearing the different people and their perspectives and i really really have to say i super enjoyed the um the flying dinosaur birds uh, <laughs> oh, with Jingmei? Yeah, Jingmei, it, it's so cool. I, I, it's sort of like what you were saying, like, what do you do? Write a song, do whatever you can do. Like, you do your, your superpower and like whatever, you know, she's in a completely different career and country and place. And yeah, as I was uh, manically Christmas shopping with her in my earbuds, <laughs> <laughs> and going into like weird stores I never go and buying things that I had to return later because I was distracted by the fun conversation and making stupid purchases. <laughs> um, <laughs> her vibe was just really contagious in the way that she doesn't take any bullshit and she's she knows herself, you know, like I love how she was like, ew, I wouldn't sleep in a dirty farmer's house or whatever, like... <laughs> so funny like I don't really relate to that like I kind of like dirty farmers houses personally but I just related to her like you were pointing out like her knowing herself and her uh you know just unapologetic like hey I'm me and this is what I do and I study this and I publish more than anybody and I kick ass and it's you know that's how I feel it's like we're not the same but we are in some way because you know I'll write a bunch of songs and I'll put them out when they're getting done, you know, and I'll, whatever it is, you know, I, 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 I was inspired you'll get, by You'll one. get them when you're good. <laughs> like the person with whom I share very little, you know, I just was like, yeah, I, we could hang anytime. <laughs> I sometimes wish like I could arrange a hang. Yeah. Like that's the one, like, I feel like people who podcast and like really mm-hmm. focus on a specific area, like I'm only going to talk to women in the Northeast or only in the Catskills or whatever. And I feel like I always want different perspectives, mm. but I swear on some level, like I have a deep seated dream, like how can I connect all these women, not just to me, but like to each other, right? Like, and now yeah. I feel like I'm Come filing that away. Center we'll have a retreat. <laughs> oh my God, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. <laughs> Seriously, you know, um, that's just funny that you're saying that. It all of us in the bunk beds in the longhouse. <laughs> totally. There's a, um, there's a midwife who lives right up the road from Ashokan who has a through the summer, she has a party on like the first Wednesday of the month where all the babies that she helped birth and their moms and families show up for like a hang and they swim in her swimming pool. And um, it sounds kind of like that, you know, it's like this weird, like, 
this weird like homecoming of all these people who don't know each other necessarily, but then they actually get to know each other through her, through this like woman who helped them. <laughs> that I think is, it would be a really cool yes. idea. Maybe not monthly, but maybe annually you should do it. <laughs> I feel like we need to talk about this even more. Like send out an invite, you know, see, you know, maybe someone would Skype in. It would be kind of like a little not as cool, but some people might come. <laughs> it's so funny. I would go. <laughs> Yay. Well, it's so yeah, funny I want to learn more about think, this. Like, what was it like? Um, uh, employee directed nonprofit. What was the phrase? Oh, I'm going to forget. Yeah. It was it was it Asia's episode? Yes. Yeah, the, so the cool. worker directed heard, nonprofit. Yes. Yes, that's it. And her conversation about like the the circles and taking your turn to speak, something I also find challenging. <laughs> Me that too. That was a great <laughs> Oh man. It was just like, you know, such a cool um, window into, you know, she comes from a corporate experience and this feeling of like competitiveness and trying to have like total pride in your work and not wanting to share. It's like, well, I don't really relate to that. I come from like an anti-corporate world and like everything is collective and committee and band and group and collaborative. But I definitely related to so many other just like personal communication and um, all those issues of of how to share a space or feel heard. I love that she was talking about um, difference between being heard and feeling heard. <laughs> so yeah. cool. Like, oh, good point. You know, little yeah. gems, little gems in all these episodes. I would love to hang out with all these ladies. Well, Asia is an easy, <laughs> an easy way for me to combine. And it's funny because I got to know Asia at a showcan. Like, so, I mean, I did the Good Work Institute Fellowship, which Asia is a part of. And so, like, it was so funny because, I mean, I can think of being in the dining hall, like, on a Saturday night. And, like, Asia is so funny as a mom. Like, she just always has little Charlie, like, kind of strapped to her, like, you know, in a backpack, in a Bjorn. Like, Charlie just, like, rolls. And and it's so funny because it's, like, now all my worlds are combining in this conversation because it's like (laughs) this, this actually, can you explain what a show can is? Cause I feel like we've been referencing it and like the poor audience is like, I know I kept putting (sighs) it off. So so for more than 50 years, it's been an environmental education center where school groups come. They used to come for a full week of four overnights and five days of, programs and meals. Now they mostly come for two nights and three days and and they split the week. It's usually schools from, you know, like lower New York state, Long Island, but they come from anywhere and they get outside the classroom and they have these amazing bonding experiences with each other in nature. And it's, uh, they teach history, nature, and, uh, like living history. There's, uh, crafts like blacksmithing and broom making and, all sorts of cool stuff. And, and that's a program is, like I said, it's been going on for more than 50 years. And when it started, it was really the first of its kind in New York state. And in the summer times, cause there's no schools, they would always rent out to different groups that wanted to do fun stuff there in the summer. My dad 40 years ago started doing music and dance camps there. And that's how I was introduced to the place as a little kid being there for fiddle camps all summer Aww. long and that has expanded and expanded and 
about 10 years ago, 11, I guess, um, the land was put up for sale. It used to be called the Ashokan Field Campus, which was an arm of SUNY New Paltz. And they were selling the land, which was 385 acres. There were various groups that were looking into purchasing the land, including a logging company and various people who would have really, um, quote unquote, developed the land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and a lot of the people who had been coming at that point for about 30 years to music and dance camps really felt passionately about keeping the place going and environmental education going as well. And so they formed a foundation. Governor Pataki, who at the time was someone my dad had met through his tune, Ashokan Farewell, Governor Pataki's a history buff and a lover of nature, as it turns out, knew my dad's tune, which had brought a tear to his eye at some event in Gettysburg. <laughs> my dad oh. reached out to him. And really the tune helped connect to Governor Pataki, who helped connect to the Open Space Institute and um, or Open Space Commission and all these little pieces and my dad's incredible wizardry with um, really just like helping bring people together for a good cause. Um, they were able to form the Ashokan Foundation, purchase the land, keep the environmental ed programs going, negotiate with the DEP who was doing all sorts of water releases because of climate shifting and the reservoir and politics that I could go into that another time, but it was all somehow happily resolved in these 385 acres being preserved. The waterway still has water releases done by the city anytime they want. And the Ashokan Center has brand new buildings built uphill away from the flooding. Um, (laughs) And they're beautiful. They're better insulated. They're, (laughs) you know, um, architecturally sound and environmental. And the whole place runs on solar now and uh, radiant heat and floors and really wonderful chef, Chef Bill. Yes. Ali have the environmental program running great. There's young teachers there from all around who come to work with kids and just an amazing place. And now there's, instead of one or two music camps in the summer, there's like 10 throughout the year, people learning Scottish music and Cajun music and country Western swing and all sorts of traditional music and dance that is really thriving. Mike and I host the summer hoot at the end of August and the winter hoot coming right up January 31st, February 1st and 2nd. Sort of, this is the eighth annual Winter Hoot and Summer Hoot coming up this year. And we started these, even before I had a job at a show, can we just like really were connected to the place because of camps. And we love the idea of bringing more awareness to the local community because a lot of people who go there, they're there for a retreat or a wedding or they're there for their, with a school. And they have this sense of community while they're there, but they're coming from disparate geographical communities and we're not, always connecting Ashokan to the actual local community. <laughs> um, but in schools there are weddings there, you can't be open, you know, you kind of have to be private. So, so the hoot in, in the winter hoot and summer hoot both strive to, um, we have a sliding scale at the door. You can come pay a dollar. You can come pay $200 if you want to support the mission. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. There's music, food, um, in the case of the Winter Who, a documentary, we're screening the fantastic Fungi movie, which I'm super excited about. 
this, you're appealing to my nerdy sense too. Dude, this movie, I, I've been watching, it's beautiful time-lapse photography of mushrooms doing their thing and then incredible scientific, you know, frontier of discovery about mycelium underground and it's, it's all really cool. Uh, new applications of medicine and more for the, for the, yeah, for the mushroom. We could go on about that. The, the winner who is going to be a film and dinner discussion on Friday night, music all day and night, Saturday, and a sing-along on Sunday, and everybody goes home. So it's a lot of fun. Ashokan's an incredible place. You can get married there. You can bring your retreat there. I guess the Good Work Institute did that, which is awesome. <laughs> they did. It was like the double whammy of like localness where it was being yeah. at Ashokan, and then they brought Wild Earth in to teach us. Wow. some skills. So, okay. I mean, that was just like double bonus, right? And the, and the stated mission of the Shokin Center is to teach, uh, inspire, and build community through shared experiences in music, nature, history, and the arts. So really, that's what all of this is. You know, we're, when you share experiences in nature, you know, and you connect to history and music and the arts, like that's what builds community. That's what inspires and teaches. And that's what the through line is between all the stuff that happens there. It's a pretty inspiring place. And um, I'm, you know, I'm having a good time. I'm also feeling a little bit like in the weeds with the fact that I'm a parent, a touring recording artist and have a communications job at Ashokan. <laughs> uh, which I, rem- I do remotely yeah. quite a bit, you know? So sometimes I'm like in a van on my way to a sound check and, you know, proofreading a pre- press release for upcoming events at Ashokan. But whatever it is, you know, it all gets done one way or another. And there's an incredible team of people that work there. Um, there's a new director of development who's been there a couple years, Linda, who's so great. And, um, there's all sorts of good stuff. There's a youth summit coming up. Um, Dan Shornstein is doing school outreach and he's, he's reached out to a bunch of international schools that are, um, they're bringing, actually, this is of interest. They're bringing a climatologist, uh, James Hansen to town. He is one of the foremost climatologists for decades and he's going to do a talk actually in Kingston to, for, you know, to reach an even greater community and he's also working with the youth that will be at the summit. It's called YES, which is Youth Empowerment and Sustainability Summit. And there's students from, you know, Kingston, Woodstock, Sweden, the UK, <laughs> and what? places in between. <laughs> um, yeah, there's so much exciting stuff going on at Ashokan. It's really cool. One thing I helped to do this year is build a simpler website that hopefully is uh, easy to navigate and visually pleasing and um, will allow people to come to one place, whether they're interested in music camps or outdoor education or weddings or whatnot and get the information they need. Our old website was really two websites that were gargantuan and sprawling. So it was quite a, quite an ordeal to, <laughs> to pair it back. It's a lot of fun. The and, UX designer in me salutes your effort. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like I w- I'm not a web designer, but I was the I was the point person talking to everyone at Ashokan about their needs and and then um to the actual web designer about what is actually possible. So, I think I maybe was doing what is it? UX 
user experience design. I may have been doing some of that. <laughs> I think you were. <laughs> Ruth, you are like literally when your bio says you're, you know, a multidimensional artist. I think it's multidimensional human being who's got their hands in so many interesting things. But I, I realize I don't want to be too greedy with your time. And I know you have 10 billion other things to do probably in any given day. <laughs> I, I want to ask one more question and okay. give you the chance to, you know, I know our conversation kind of goes all over the place. What do you most want Levital Corsalon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? Well, for me, what really, what, what I come back to is that, um, what's most interesting to watch on stage or what I admire in my peers or my friends and family is those moments where you really see someone connect inward and take a risk to be more honest and truthful. And sometimes that is risky and it takes bravery and you have to be willing to make mistakes. So I guess that's really what I try to live is that, you know, I, w I went downhill skiing last week. I'm not a skier, but <laughs> sometimes, you know, that's part of walking the walks, like do something you can't do, <laughs> you know, find the boundaries by exploring them and pushing them and, and then you'll know them. You'll know exactly where your edge is when you have two boards strapped to your feet going yeah. down a hill. <laughs> My tailbone is a good indicator. <laughs> At this very moment, stretch. Um, yeah, and and really, you know, it matters. You know, the next generation needs authenticity and guidance and truth. And um, your beliefs, limiting beliefs or uninhibiting beliefs or whatever they are, they guide what is possible. And you know, and we teach that through being role models and whether you're on stage or in the workplace or whatever it is, you're inspiring other people all the time. And, um, you know, and when, when you catch something that you've done that didn't feel right, you know, that is a learning experience. That's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Ruth. I hope that's something that I've communicated. Yes, you have been so generous and so open. I am so grateful for your time and your your wisdom and your perspective. Like, wow. Wow. Well, thanks for wow. All the cool questions. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Zowie. Is Ruth not totally fabulous? Oh, thank you to Ruth and thank you for tuning in and making it all the way to the very end of this sort of extra long episode. I know Ruth and I mentioned a lot of resources and links, so you can find all of them in the show notes over at levitalcoursesalon.com. So that's L-E-Vital-C-O-R-P-S salon.com. And I want to ask for one favor. 
I want you to please help me amplify the work of Ruth and all the great past guests by subscribing to Le Vital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. And what's really impactful for growing this little podcast that could is when you share this episode or your favorite episode with at least one other human being in your life. While both of those things seem very small and take only a few seconds or maybe a minute, it's incredibly impactful to this podcast and it helps me share all of the amazing things that all of the past guests are doing. Merci beaucoup to all the people who contributed to this episode, including Craig Snyder, Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone, and the High Dials. And until next time, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.